Welcome to the Tuesday Theology edition of the Scottsdale Podcast. At Scottsdale, one of our core values is studying God's Word. So through this theology class, our goal is to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. Enjoy, and we hope that you grow in your knowledge of God and application of His Word. Well, good evening, everyone. We are in week 32. We have two more weeks left, and you will have completed this Bible doctrine book of 34 weeks. I'm so proud of you. Thank you all for sticking with it. Um, it's been um, a challenging uh, time. It's been a good time. You're going to forget a lot about what you've learned. And, uh, but you've got the book and you can continue to go back and do it. The wonderful thing about reading God's word is God's word is not static. God's word is the right of Hebrews says it is living, it is active, and it is sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the joints and to the marrow and discerning the motives of the heart. And it's a wonderful thing about God's word. And God's word is that source that transforms our lives. <laughs> I heard about this man who was um, uh, encouraged to go to... Um, a uh, Promise Keepers event. You guys remember the Promise Keepers events years ago when they were really big? I've been to a couple of those. Well, he went to this Promise Keepers event and his wife was very doubtful that there would be any impact in his life. Um, and so he goes and he was so challenged by the kind of man that he ought to be that he surprised his wife. He came home early. He rang the doorbell. And when she opened the doorbell, there he stood in a tuxedo with flowers and chocolates and standing there before her. And she looked at him and just started crying. And he said, honey, what is wrong? She said, little Johnny has been sick all day. The dishwasher quit. The washing machine is leaking and you come home drunk. <laughs> so, but... Sometimes people are surprised at us because of the transformation that can happen in our lives. And so we definitely are grateful for God's word and what God's word does. Um, and we've been looking at a lot of issues this last 32 weeks of God's word, digging deep, trying to do some deep dives and issues of doctrine and some pretty heady stuff that you guys have been working through. And tonight, as we are in chapter, what, 32? And we're going to be looking at the millennium tonight. Okay? Before we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that your word says in Proverbs 35 that every word is tested and is true. Thank you that Jesus told us that your word is truth. Sanctify them in your truth. And so, Father, as we dig into your word, it is our desire that you sanctify our hearts, that you sanctify our minds. Father, that these will in turn sanctify our actions and our behavior as we live in this world. And Father, we ask that even as we talk tonight about this issue of the millennium, that you would encourage our hearts, even when we don't fully understand it. These things are a mystery to us. And tonight, we're just going to look at four different positions, and we pray, Father, that you would guide us through that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, take your Bibles and open to Revelation chapter 20. 
and Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 is the place where we find the term the millennium. And millennium actually just refers to a thousand years. Um, and it's in this one passage that we find in seven verses, it is mentioned six times, the word millennium. And so we're going to read that and you follow along with me as I start in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There's the first time. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Second time. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And in verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. So what we see is this term called the millennium. And throughout the church ages, there have been a number of different positions when it comes to the millennium, this thousand year reign. And in the church today, there are at least four specific positions. Wayne Grudem mentions three specific positions. And in the one, there are two. And we're going to look at those tonight. And here's what I'm not going to do. I really don't want to get into spending time in all the arguments for each one, this and that and this and that. I want us to just look at them as an overall and then just make some comments in the end, because you may find yourself in this room in a different position. Some of you may find yourself in one of these four categories, and that's okay. We're not going to let these secondary issues ever divide us from the primary truth of the gospel because we can hold different positions when it comes to the millennium. Because a lot of times, I'll be honest with you, if you're looking to this pastor to provide you a specific direction and answer, I have to tell you, when it comes to the millennium, I am highly unstable in this area. And, uh, and it's because there are different positions that could be argued a number of different ways. Now, I will tell you which of the two I tend to fall on and why, but that certainly doesn't make it right. And as I said when we were preaching through the Revelation series, that if, if, if at the end of the day when we're in heaven and my millennial view was wrong, I'm not going to be mad about it. I'm not going to be mad about it. I'm going to be happy that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And together we are going to be there. 
Okay, so let's just kind of look at some of them and I'll walk you through each of those. And then I'll just ask you some questions about which ones do you think um, you align with and why. Okay, so here's the first one that he brings up is amillennialism. Amillennialism and the word a in the Greek when it's put on there is basically says like, um, antinomianism means no law. Okay, so that means no millennium. And those who hold to the position of amillennialism are those who say that they don't believe that there's a literal thousand year reign on earth, that Jesus is going to set up the kingdom and reign with the saints for a literal thousand years. By the way, this was very much a position in the early church. And many of the reformers um, have held to this and hold to this position of amillennialism. Amillennialism talks about, you know, Christ's death and resurrection and ascension happens. And then there's a millennium in heaven only. The earthly church is always in tribulation. So from the time that Jesus rose from the dead, the church has been going through this time of persecution. And we certainly see that. And we can see the waves of persecution. And certainly around the world, we are exempt from a lot of the persecution. Most churches around the world are in heavy persecution. And whenever we get to the place where we experience heavy persecution, the rest of the world is going to say to us, welcome to the party. Uh, because we are actually one of the, um, um, we're, we are, I won't say we're exempt, we, we are out of the ordinary when it comes to that. So, and the kingdom of Satan and church are in a stalemate until the end. There's a battle going on right now between good and evil, the kingdom and Satan. And according to Grudem and according to many people who hold to amillennialism, the way that they deal with the issue of Satan being bound and thrown into a pit actually happened when Jesus came in his ministry. Because you remember when Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 12, he says that how can you take over unless you bind the strong man? And the argument is when Jesus came, he bound the strong man. He bound Satan. So Satan is really bound now um, with an amillennial view. Now, it doesn't mean that there, there won't be any evil in the world because there's brokenness and fallenness and the depravity of humanity. So that's going to work its way out in our culture. So their view is basically that it's one thing that happens all at once. We are currently in the millennium. We're currently going through persecution from the world and from things like that. And then the second coming and the resurrection of the saved and the unsaved will all happen at the same time. And so when Jesus comes back, both those who are saved and unsaved will receive resurrected bodies. Then there would be the judgment that will come for all of humanity. So when you look at all millennialism, it's pretty clean. It's just we're in that time of tribulation. We're going through persecution. When Jesus comes back, everything will end and it will be clean. Judgment will come and then there'll be the rewards and then the damnation. So. Amillennialism, and, and I'm, I'm simplifying it, is, um, is, is a position that many people hold. 
And one of the reasons that many people hold it is because they can't quite figure out what is the purpose of the thousand year reign. If Jesus is going to come and reign for a thousand years and the saints are going to be with him with resurrected bodies, but those who are not saved will not receive their resurrected bodies in judgment until the end. And the Jews who are going to come to faith in Christ during that time and reign with him will not have resurrected bodies. So there's a lot of confusion of how can that be? And if Jesus is setting up a perfect kingdom on earth, how can that operate in righteousness when you've got brokenness and fallen and sinful people who will reject him and who will not continue to follow him? So there are a lot of different questions that people have. And for many people, our millennialism seems to be one that is clean and is able to make an, an understanding in their mind. Basically, what I've said is, are there any comments or questions that you might have about this? Or maybe even some clarifications that you would like to add. Yeah. I mean, that right there, he's not bound there. Right. It sound like he's bound. Right. Um, in John, there's, a, there's two or three places where it talks about how Judas was, you know, uh, overtaken by Satan. If he's bound, how does he overtake people? Right. There's a number of arguments there that, that kind of indicate that he's far from bound. I yeah. Think. And then you deal with also Ephesians chapter 6, where it says we put on the full armor of God. Uh, why? So we could stand against the devil's schemes. Now, some people would say, okay, the schemes of the devil don't necessarily have to be perpetrated by him, but by emissaries, by demons that do his bidding. And we certainly see that because that can be a reality of it. Yeah, there are, and what you're going to find in every single position there can be a lot of different questions that um, is hard for us to completely answer in a neat little compartmentalized position. So this is one position, and this is a position that uh, uh, many Reformed uh, people hold today, and, and early church held quite a bit of it. So this is a popular position, uh, and it's gaining in its popularity um, in these days. The second one is post-millennialism. And post-millennialism really doesn't have a lot of popularity to it. Post-millennialism, basically in the same way, talks about Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, the 40 years, last days, the great tribulation is destroyed. Then you're in this millennium, but this millennium is kind of a figurative millennium. Increased manifestation of Christ's rules happens on earth, which means basically because of the power of the gospel spreading year after year, generation after generation, century after century, things are going to get better. And the gospel is going to have such an impact in the world that you're going to see a shift of the world coming more towards a Christian worldview and then things are just going to constantly keep getting better. Now, this was an, a position in the early church that they held this position because they had such confidence in the gospel. 
Remember, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Um, and then it goes through, you know, to the Jew first and to the, to the Gentile. Then we see that they had this belief that the gospel is going to continue to spread and spread and things are going to get better. And then that represents the millennium, that during that course of the millennium, countries and cultures are going to be transformed and it's going to be almost a utopia of just living for Christ. Any problems with that view? Huh? Are things getting better? Okay. Certainly what we've seen in our own lifetime, they haven't. And in fact, what we see that the writing of Timothy, Paul to Timothy, he tells us in the end times, things are not going to be good. People are going to be teaching the doctrines of demons. And we're going to see that God turns people over to their depraved mind in Romans chapter 1. We see that happening three times. And so we see that in a lot of ways, things are not getting better, but we see actually a decline in, in morality. The moral compass of our culture seems to have been eroded. And we see that more and more and more. And then you see, uh, of course, in the early church, the constant persecution of the church rather than the building up of the church. And we certainly are seeing that around us today. And I believe that we're going to see an increase in the days ahead of persecution towards us. Any comments about that? Questions? Okay. I'm sorry? Where do they address Satan in that? That we're, we're dealing with him? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, we're overcoming him? Um, he's here, but um, all of that is going to be settled in the final judgment. But, yes, the power of the gospel is having a power over principalities and rulers and demons and all of those things as well. Yeah. So... That, that's, a, that, that's one that I don't know of anybody. Does anybody know anybody that, that holds the post-millennialism? R.C. Sproul is a pretty prominent post-mill. Oh, is it really? R.C.? I didn't know he was that. There's a lot for post-mill. I, I have difficulties with some of it. Yeah. As I do with all of them in some way. Well, and, and we're going to see that we're going to have some struggles with all of them in some particular areas because we don't fully understand it. Yes, Mike. I was just going to say, in the beginning, um, after Christ died and the church started to spread, there was a lot of persecution that went on. But then it didn't take that much time before actually, you know, the Romans start made, made uh, Christianity the religion. So maybe that's what they were seeing. The early people say, it's, it's changing. It's changing the world, and therefore the post-millennium. Mm -hmm. And since then, Christ seen a, seems like it's going downhill with the... Uh, yeah. Improving around the world. At one time, it did look like it was changing things. And it, it is interesting that be, by, by the, I forget what the year was, that Rome actually was at that point 52% Christians. That's how much the impact of Christianity had even in Rome. Um, and so the, early, the truth is the early church did see and have a great hope in that. And they were seeing this revival sweeping across the land um, and so many people's lives being transformed. So there was in that early thought that that could be uh, the possibility of that. OK, now let's look at the, the third one. And these are what we call premillennialism. Um, that means that there is a 
belief that there is a literal thousand year reign um, on earth. And this is known as the historic premillennialism or the classic premillennialism. And there's a difference between the historic and the dispensational premillennialism. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But when we deal with the historic premillennialism, you're dealing with Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. The initial, initial phase of the kingdom, which we're in now, we're growing through that. Then there comes the great tribulation that Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 24. And then this great tribulation is to last, according to that, in Daniel, seven years. Three and a half years of this peaceful tribulation with three and a half years of the, 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 the difficult tribulation. Um, historic premillennialism believes that at the end of the great tribulation, that the church will go through the tribulation. Some believe in a mid-trib view. That would be like, okay, probably somewhere in the middle of the tribulation that there will be a, a rapture secret coming and rapture of the church, which means somewhere in the middle or at the end of the tribulation, this secret coming of Jesus is a rapture that only believers will experience. They will be caught up in heaven. And in this view, they will be caught up, receive their resurrected bodies and immediately come back down with Christ and the saints and those who have preceded us in death and set up a thousand year reign on earth. And then at the thousand year reign, then there will become, of course, at the end of that, the whole issue of Armageddon. There will be the issue of the last judgment. This is where the resurrection of the unsaved are brought before the great white throne judgment. This is where believers will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ not being judged by the wrath of God, but just for our deeds and the receiving of the reward. So what happens is the rapture happens. We go to heaven, receive or meet him in the clouds, receive our resurrected body, be joined with those who have preceded us in death, come back down. And there's a thousand year reign, a literal thousand year reign. It's during this time that the enemy, Satan, is bound and thrown into a pit. And he's not able to deceive the nations. Now, one of the points that many people who hold to this view is that when Satan is bound, that thousand year reign with Christ being the king of the earth and the saints joining with him in resurrected bodies, of course, we won't die. So we can live a thousand years. Now, you've got somebody like John MacArthur who would say, but what about the unbelievers? How do they live? Well, he talks about the supernatural ability for them to even live a long time. Um, and so what happens is in that thousand year reign, we rule and we reign with Christ. Now, what will we do? I have no idea. OK, well, how we're going to do it? I don't know. But during that thousand year reign, yeah, we'll have some beautiful gardens. We'll, it'll be wonderful, you know. Maybe even anything I plant will live. So, because um, everything I plant dies. So during this time, there's, there's a secret rapture, boom. Comes straight back down, reign a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years comes a culmination of all of history. Then the final judgments and things like that. This is called historical premillennialism, Okay. Any questions or comments about this? I have a 
Yes. What happens to the unbelievers when the believers ascending go with Jesus and then they all come back together, they come back with Jesus. What about the unbelievers that are still here? Do they have an opportunity to get well, saved? If the devil is bound during that yeah. time, what are the unbelievers doing during that time? Yeah, and of course, many people believe in that, that there is the opportunity to that time that people will literally come to faith in Christ. Okay? The question is, if they do come to faith in Christ, at what point do they receive a resurrected body? So there's some questions about that. Those who, who are living in a culture and receiving the blessings of a culture with the righteousness of Christ, and they reject Christ, how do they operate within that context? I don't know. Um, and um, for those who are particularly, and we're going to see in the next category with, with Israel um, and the Jews having mass conversions, and they're coming to faith in Christ, then what happens with them? Do they automatically receive a resurrected body? It doesn't say, and it doesn't tell us. So these are some of the questions that a lot of us can have in this. Um, there are some, and if you remember, there are some people that would believe that once the rapture happens, that the Spirit of God is removed from the planet, the Spirit of God is taken up, and once the Spirit of God is not here, then people cannot be drawn and be converted. And so there are some that believe that once the rapture happens and all the saints are captured, then those who are left cannot get be saved because there is no conviction of the Holy Spirit for their sin. And then there are those who, like wrote Left Behind series, believe that people can be saved after the rapture. Of course, they needed to write, believe that or they wouldn't have a story to tell. They couldn't keep writing the books that they were writing. Now, John MacArthur, um, which is interesting to me, who is, um, is reformed in his theology, very much Calvinistic in his approach to the scriptures, but has a dispensational premillennial view, which is really odd for a reformed theologian. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Of course, his belief is that, yes, you can come to faith in Christ after the rapture. However, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be very painful. There's going to be a lot of suffering. There's going to be a lot of persecution. And there's going to be a lot of trouble and turmoil during the midst of all of that. So this is what we call the historical premillennial. This probably is where I'm most, most aligned with. I'm most aligned with this because I do not see in Scripture where we are specifically told that the church will not go through persecution and trouble. The early church did not. We do see in Revelation where Jesus speaks to one of the churches that he will spare you from the tribulation to come. And some people will take that and say, you see, that means that the church will be raptured. No, he's speaking to a specific church there not to the church at large. And so there are a number of different positions in that. Gary. I was going to ask this question later. It's related to the end times, but as long as you mentioned the Jews, 
Um, where does God's covenant with Abraham and David fit into the end times discussion? If you're into, if you're into historical, I mean, um, the, the next vision, you'll see where that fits in. Okay. okay? Um, yeah, the difference between the historical premillennialism and the dispensational premillennialism is with respect to when the rapture happens and the important connection with Israel. Yes, sir. When does the marriage feast of the Lamb occur under this historical premillennialism? Um, let's remember this. When we're dealing with the book of Revelation, we're not dealing chronologically. Okay, we're in chapter 20 talking about this. The marriage feast of the Lamb takes place in chapter 19. Just because it's in 19 and one's in 20 doesn't mean that there's a chronological view of this. The marriage feast of the Lamb is what takes place in heaven. That's when we're going to be together as a body of Christ. And, and that's where the free trip people think that you go get called up into heaven. That that is exactly right. But there's no scriptural basis to make that fact. There's no no sir. There's not. There there's because it happens in chapter 19, and then you see the events of chapter 20 of the millennium. Of course, they believe that the rapture already happened way in chapter four um, in the book of Revelation. And so again, the book of Revelation is not necessarily laid out in a chronological way. What we're doing is we're seeing windows open, windows closed, doors open, doors closed. I've seen this, I heard this, and it's kind of going back and forth. So there is the view from the dispensationalist that, yeah, that's when the wedding feast of the Lamb is taking place. Because if all the saints have been raptured and we're all together and we're celebrating at that point then there is that preparation. But if you're historical premillennial, then what ends up happening is we see the rapture that happens in an immediate return. There's no time for the wedding feast of the Lamb at that point. That will come after the final judgments and when we're in the presence of Christ. Resurrected bodies. At that point, be meeting Jesus in the air, receive our resurrected bodies, come back down to reign. Um, and that's, that's the position that they hold to that. The other one is just simply we're going to, well, I'm going to look at the other one before we, we keep getting into this. Yes. First, it's going to be the rain for a thousand years. Yeah, it's at the end of the thousand year, the millennial rain that Satan is released. Then he goes out and he gathers the nations to come against Christ. And then we see that the battle of Armageddon takes place. And here's a beautiful thing. The saints of God don't even participate in it. We're just riding behind Jesus. And with one word of his mouth, destroyed. And he is the one. I like that. I like, I like the king going out in the front. Um, so that's kind of the timeline for that. But these are good questions. And you can see all the different angles and questions that people have when it comes to this. Now, let's look at the last one. This is the one that probably today is the most popular 
but, however, did not become popular until the 19th century. It was later on that this view has gained its prominence in the church. And you find a lot of Southern Baptist churches that predominantly fall into what we call dispensational premillennialism. Why dispensational is because it's talking about certain dispensations and certain times and events have to happen before the return of Christ. So it begins with the Old Testament, Israel and the law. And then you're dealing with the material world during that time. And then Christ dies. Kingdom is postponed until the millennium. Okay. And then the New Testament is a time of grace. The church ages in grace. Uh, and then there is the belief that Jesus will rapture the church before the tribulation. So before the great tribulation comes, there's this secret coming of Jesus. And he's going to rapture the church. All those who are in Christ will be caught up in a twinkling of an eye in a moment, gathered with him in the clouds. And those who have preceded us in death will be coming with him. At that point, the graves will give up the bodies. They'll be resurrected bodies. We will meet Jesus in the air with a resurrected body. Okay? But then we're going to spend seven years in heaven. And we'll be with him in heaven. And this is where some will say, okay, this is where the wedding feast of the Lamb. We're all celebrating together. We're having this great time. And then at the end of seven years, then we come back down and... Yes, we got to come back. That's, that's the thing. But in both ways, you got to go back. Okay. Seven years, we come back with our resurrected bodies. But here's the difference. In this position, in this view, Israel is very prominent in this. That, that God honors the people of Israel, the people of God. And it's during that millennial time where there is going to be, of course, you know, during the tribulation, there's going to be a lot of Jews coming to faith in Christ. But in that millennial time, these Jewish people, a lot of converts are going to happen. A lot of people are going to come to faith in Christ. Not all of them. But they will. And then there will be the fulfillment of Israel um, in that relationship with Christ after a thousand years. Then after a thousand years, the devil is released. Then what is happening is there is the same thing. The Armageddon takes place. And then there's the last judgment where we all stand before God. Now, remember, those who have died apart from Christ are in a place of torment and suffering. They just haven't received their final rewards. Those who have died in Christ are in a place of pleasure and bliss. They're in the presence of Jesus. They haven't received their final rewards. The final rewards do not happen until that last judgment. When everything and believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ, given an account of our deeds that was even done in the flesh or done in the spirit, and those in the flesh will be burned up, um, but we will be saved because of the blood of Christ and there will be rewards given at that point. Also, there will be judgment on people cast into the lake of fire and the enemy himself, the devil, will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, uh, a lot of people love this position because in this position, you don't have to worry about going through a tribulation time. 
You don't have to worry about being persecuted. You don't have to worry about all the horrible things that we read about in the seals and in the judgments and the trumpets and the bowls. I mean, who wants to go through that, right? So this is a very popular view. And a lot of people have held to this and still hold to this today. Now, I jokingly said when we went through the book of Revelation that um, this is not the position that I particularly hold, but I would not mind if they're right. I mean, who, who doesn't want to go through that? And there are a lot of reasons that I, I don't particularly hold to that. And um, some of the reasons I don't hold to it is because um, I don't see that through the scriptures and through the New Testament that there is necessarily the exemption from the church to go through severe persecution. Because one of the things we see over and over is those who endure to the end will be saved. And there is this issue of suffering and persecution. Here's the thing. I can't be dogmatic in any particular one except maybe post-millennialism. I don't, I, I don't think that I can hold to that. That's on one end. So I would find myself primarily in a historical premillennial, maybe even a mid-trib um, premillennialist, somewhere in there, um, still recognizing that there is a millennial. And then sometimes I find myself in the camp of all millennialism because I can't figure out the purpose necessarily of the millennium and what does it mean and, and, and how does that function and advance the kingdom of God? Now, just because I don't understand it doesn't mean that it's right or it's wrong. So now I'm going to say and open this up to you that one of the things that none of us knows clearly. Now, we might have convictions about a particular position. And maybe you have studied this position that you hold a great deal. There's some people that do. Listen, the, 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 the dispensational premillennialists, they are ready to debate you and they've got their charts and their graphs and all of their stuff that they can say, okay, you see this and see this and see this. Now, the thing that we have to understand is this. While we may differ in the different positions that are out there, it's good to ask the questions. It's good to evaluate. It's, it's good to listen to the debates. Wayne Grudem does a pretty good job in here asking all the questions. He falls in the same category that I'm in when he deals with the classical or the historic premillennial. Um, we both fall in that same category. Um, but there are a lot of questions that you can answer. And there's a lot of questions that are unanswerable. Um, in the midst of this. So the thing that we need to constantly fall on is the fact that we might not know exactly when he's coming back, but we all agree that he is coming back and that his promises are sure and we can rest in that. I would say there are five things we know for certain. Let me give you these five things. Number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over the details of humanity and over the details of his own plan. And God is always going to work out his plan in his time, regardless of what we think about it. Here's the second thing. Satan is subordinate. 
He is subordinate. He is secondary. He is under the authority of Almighty God. He might be a roaring lion running and seeking those whom he can devour, but he is a defeated foe. He is a lion with no claws and no teeth. You know, it's interesting, a roaring lion. When I was in Africa, I went on a safari. And one of the things the guide said to us, he said, the most dangerous lion is a roaring lion. I said, why? He said, because he's wounded. And when he's wounded, he roars all the time to try to scare his prey. And I thought, wow, what a beautiful picture of what Satan is. He's a defeated foe. Here's the third thing, and I love this. The gospel cannot be stopped. No matter what happens in our world, no matter what happens politically, no matter what happens culturally, the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. And so it is going to continue. Number four, Christ's return is sure. His return is sure. We can rest in the truth that Jesus is coming back. And the last thing I would say is this, that every single person will stand before God. Those of us who are in Christ, we're going to stand before Him at the judgment seat of Christ. Those who are not in Christ will be judged by God. Every single human being will stand before God. So there are no such things as atheists. Not really. Because in that day, every person is going to see the reality of God. And all of those who are in Christ, we're going to see the reality of our risen Savior. And I can't wait to that day. I mean, I was driving up today. I was thinking, Lord, I would be okay if you came back today. I would be fine if you took me today. I mean, I can't wait to be in your presence and to be with you for all of eternity. And the question that I ask a lot is this. Why do you want to go to heaven? Why do people want to go to heaven? Let me just ask you that and you give me some of the answers. Why is it that people want to go to heaven? They want to see their family. Okay. Man, I want to go see... Gramps, I want to go see Pops, Popsy, Poppy, whatever. My little grandson, I, I, I told him my name's Pops, but this week he decided to call me Poppy. And I'm like, oh man, don't call me Poppy, but really I don't care what he calls me. But anyway, the thing is, people want to see their family. How many times do you go to a funeral and say, oh, you're going to see your loved ones and you're going to do, okay, what's another reason? Jesus is there and Satan's not. Jesus is there and Satan's not, okay? That's right. That's right. Eternal. Eternal. I get to live forever. Get to live forever. What are some other things we look forward to? No suffering. suffering. The death of death. No pain. No loneliness. No depression. No anxiety. I mean, just perfect. No voting. That's right. We have a king. You don't vote a king in. And he's not going to resign. That's right. And, uh, you know, and the question was, how old are we going to be? Are there, are there, are there going to be infants in heaven? 
Children who die as infants, are they eternally going to be an infant? Would that be fun? I wouldn't think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It says we'll be we'll know. How old are we gonna be? Many scholars say thirty-three. That was the age of Jesus when he died. I'm all for that, man. Bring on thirty-three. Kyle's like, man, what? <laughs> Okay, here's the real thing. Would you want to go to heaven if Jesus wasn't there? That's really the issue. Why do I want to go to heaven? Because Jesus is there. I want to go see him. I want to be my Lord. I want to see him face to face. Um, is it just because I have questions I want to ask? No. I want to be there in the presence of God. I want to be there to be able to walk with the Holy Spirit. And talk about keeping in step with him. Those are the reasons. And to be with the brothers and sisters that are in Christ for all of eternity. Talk about the wedding feast of the Lamb. Talk about a celebration. Talk about this incredible meal. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, it is interesting about the wedding feast of the Lamb. That always before... Always after a great victory, there was a meal in this culture. After a great victory, there was a meal. Remember Psalm 23? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Um, we see that. We see a great meal also before a victory. We see that the Passover. When they're celebrating this meal before the Passover happens. And so we always see that as a sign of a victorious celebration. Now, these are four positions. Um, where do you find yourself and why? I'm curious. I've been honest with you about who, where I am. I'd love to hear. Where do you find? Which one most is comfortable for you? Okay, all right. I think most of us could say, okay, we're not, we're not there with the post-millennialism. That one's pretty easy. Well, if I had to choose one of those, I would have to say it would be the amillennialist would be where I would be closest to. Okay. I'm going to agree with Stan. It doesn't mean I don't have any difficulties with it. I think the binding of Satan is hard to deal with. But I think as it comes out in a lot of conversations, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's strange in Revelation. A lot of these are prophetic visions. And to think that it is just painfully clear what it means that he's bound is, I think, presumptuous. And so I think it's a difficult concept and not something that I fully resolved in my mind, but um, I think it's the one that presents the least amount of problems with the text, and not just that it makes it simpler, just that it presents the least problems. When I think uh, about the <coughs> historical pre-mill, uh, that's kind of a one way or the other when it comes to sequential order of chapters 18, 19, and mm -hmm. 
dispensational premillennialism, pre and I don't know who, who's done much study on dispensationalism, but this eschatology is actually the logical conclusion of an entire theological system, which demands that you separate Israel and the church. And so this is really to fit the system, not to fit the Bible, but to fit the system. Um, but they, they, are, they would say that you have to take 18, 19, and 20 in sequence, and that that's the way that it works. And I have an immediate problem with that, because in chapter 19, you have this great battle. And all the armies of the earth are, are arrayed against the angels, and they're all slain. But then in chapter 20, we see Satan being bound mm -hmm. so that he can't torment the nations. Well, what nations? They just got slain. So I, I have some, I guess those are the problems that just seem more obvious to me, and then the binding of Satan is kind of more uh, ethereal, difficult to... <coughs> It's like nailing jello to a wall is exactly what that means. It's not really explained very well. Um, so yeah, I, I'd fall on homilinism as well. I think, okay. I think that binding too could be kind of seen as, you know, it could be like a restrained power, so he doesn't have all as much power as he potentially could have, and then once he, I mean, because obviously he's He's at the will, he's at the like at the will of God. So I mean, he's still restrained in all in all capacities, but maybe he's constrained greater. So I'd actually want to see what bound, what the, you know, translation would actually be closer to, and do more research into that because I think that would that's an important part to be that, uh, to pay attention to there. Is, yeah, is bound. And, and and the struggle with the Book of Revelation is you you've got people take it literally, and then you've got people take it figuratively. And then you've got people who take some things literally and some things figuratively. And so it's, it, we do so because we want those things to fit our systems of belief. Um, and so you either need to take it one way or the other way. Um, it is a apocalyptic literature, which means hidden. Um, those things are revealed to us, but we can't fully understand those. So we've already gotten... Three different positions that have demonstrated. And I know some of you are finding that yourselves probably here with dispensationalism, right? So. I would, I would just say that all of these are interesting. Um, and but yet. Uh, so we're going to end on that note tonight. So. I'm more or less saying that, well, whatever happens, happens. I want to see. You know, I want to see how it works out in the end. But I just. I can't book on any one and say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And this one's more, more uh, you know, informational, you know, and, and more things to look at. Oh, okay, that sound looks neat. But yet, God is pretty simple about what his plans are, and that's, uh, you know, amillennials. So it's, I find it all interesting, but I, I just don't want to get hung up on trying to figure out everything about it. I'd like to know about it. Well, let me ask you this question. Is a particular position necessary for your faithfulness and obedience to Christ in daily living? I mean, it could be. Okay. What's, and, and it's important for us 
to have a, a belief system as we interpret Scripture, but also to have it with humility and saying, man, I don't know it all. I don't know it all. And, and I, you know, I had a professor in seminary that said, I'm a pan-millennialist. I said, what's that? He said, I believe it'll just pan out. <laughs> when the father says, go get your bride, it's going to pan out. Now, that doesn't help theologically, but it does help in a sense of saying here, the, the, the most important thing, remember what we said about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was written as a relevant book. It's not only just a, a, a revelatory book giving us revelation, but it is a relevant book. And it is a book to help us to live our lives daily with courage, with boldness, and with the certainty that Jesus is coming back. And so if I live my life every day, regardless of which view I hold, that Jesus could come back today, I think that we have to live with an imminent return of Christ. One of the things that dispensation premillennialism does, it does create a sense of this, this imminent return. And I think that there has to be this sense that today Jesus can come back. Now, if you and I are going to live by constantly looking at signs and say, well, this has to happen first and then this has to happen first and this, can't they all happen at once? Think of, think of last two years, how quickly things change in our culture. Think about how things are changing in the world. Think about how we are moving every single day to this globalistic approach. Think about even now what's been happening since the war in Ukraine and with Russia and with food supplies and what's going to be happening in the days ahead. Things can happen very quickly. I was talking to my pastor back home um, and I was asking him and I said, uh, Brother Jerry, what do you think about all of these things? He said, Phil, I really believe this. I believe we think that we might have in our minds what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. He said, I believe when it happens, we're going to say, oh, that's what it was supposed to do. And, and I think it will. And I think that we're going to be to the place where we're going to say, wow, I didn't see that coming. But the biggest thing is what we see is that the Lord Jesus is coming. And he's coming for his bride. So I am to live in such a way every day that I'm ready for his return. That I'm not going to live in a way that if he shows up, I'm going to be embarrassed. <laughs> now, I don't think that will happen just simply because those who are in Christ, we're not perfect. We are redeemed and we will be fully redeemed. Remember the little phrase, already but not yet? We're living in the already but the not yet. We're already children of God, but we do not yet fully understand and comprehend what that means. We're already living under grace, but we do not yet understand the fullness of the grace of God until we're with Him face to face. We're living in the already, but not yet. But one day, we'll be living in the yet. I don't know. <laughs> you know, yes. <coughs> I spent 40 years in the uh, manufacturing distribution of our food supply. And people may not realize this, but uh, most food manufacturers at best only have a 30-day supply in the pipeline. Wow. At best. Wow. And when you've got countries right now that are producing the wheat and are saying we're not going to export any of it, we're going to keep it. 
um, then what you're going to begin seeing is food supply shortages, and we've already seen what's happening. I don't want to scare anybody, but I think that the thing that's going to happen in the days ahead um, are going to be so different, so drastic, so fast, that's going to give us the opportunity as the body of Christ to be the body of Christ to a community and to be that to one another. I just want to throw something out that, that I've found. When you're talking about all of these various models here, uh, I don't know if you've heard of a guy named E.W. Hengstenberg. He wrote at the same time that Ooh, Darby came up with this right in the 1840s. Yeah. Uh, but he was, um, he, is a, he is a different, he is a take on it. And if you believe that God always tells you what he's going to tell these people, what he's going to do, like he did in the Old Testament with the prophets, and you take it and you look at, well, Revelation may be telling us what God is going to do between Christ and the end. So that we, as the church, can, as you said, be confident and be and uh, <clears throat> be courageous in the things that we come upon. I would highly recommend you look at this guy. Uh, you can get the little unabridged ver uh, abridged version for like twenty bucks on Amazon. It's the way he calls it. The, he calls it the Revelation of John instead of by John. But it's E. W. Hingstenberg, just like it sounds. It's but in the. Unabridged version, if you have <clears throat> the software to put it on, <clears throat> then you can hover all, all these verses that he uses in the Bible. But I have found it to be, to help me understand better than what I would understand before. Yeah. Uh, and he could be totally wrong too, but I'm just saying it gives me a confidence from having read it. And I just shared that because I don't know that. Yeah, and I would tell you, there's so many people out there today, um, um, so many different um, um, scholars who, and individuals who spend all of their time in es eschatological events, all of their time looking at every single thing that's happening in culture and weighing it and this and this and this. You know, I'm glad they have time and joy to do that. Um, um, I, sometimes I wonder if... If that is so consuming people that they don't even have time to make disciples because I'm so consumed with what's going to happen and is this the sign, is this the sign, is that the sign? I just want to just say, hey, Lord, I know that you're in charge, you're sovereign. You're going to come back. I believe you're coming back and I'm just waiting for that day, but I'm going to live faithfully until you do. Now, that might seem simple, but at the end of the day, Telling lost people about your position of eschatological events is not going to be the tool that's going to lead them to a relationship with Jesus. When you're talking to somebody who doesn't even know the stories of the Bible and you're saying, you think that's weird? Wait till I tell you about Jesus coming from the cloud in a white horse and uh, to get his bride. I mean, that's really going to sound weird. So... While we need to know those things, I would say the biggest thing that we need to do is we need to tell people about Christ and have them come to a relationship with Him, and then we walk them through all of those truths. And, and I mentioned this last week and week before. We get so Yeah. That's when he's going to return for me. And so the real issue is am I living today? Yeah. 
Right. Yep, uh, the, the early church lived for two days, today and that day, today and that day. Um, and if I live today um, to honor him, I'm going to do so that I might see him on that day. And that day might be tomorrow. And just what you said. Yeah. Here's the thing. Even in this room, we have different positions. It's fine. It doesn't mean that. The gospel is less powerful in our lives. And these secondary issues cannot be issues that divide us. They just simply cannot. We should be able to have discussions and say, well, let me tell you why I believe this. Let me tell you why I believe this. You know what? That's a good point. You know, I never thought of that before. Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. And so we get to sharpen each other as we go through these things. But the bottom line is our relationship with Christ and who we are in Him. Okay? Let me pray for us. It is, um, it is 8 o'clock. Awesome. Father, thank You for our time together this evening. Father, we confess that we can look at all of the positions. We can study we can look at your word. And Father, we recognize people who hold each position can take aspects of your word and use it to support various areas. And Father, we know that it's a struggle for us sometimes because we say we have the same Holy Spirit living within us. And yet we struggle when it comes to different convictions about different issues in Scripture. And Father, while we are imperfect in our understanding and we're seeking to know the truth, we ask, Father, that you would teach us those things that are true. Father, we would major on the major, minor on the minors. And Father, those things that are reserved for you to understand, we confess that we have no wisdom in there but we trust you in all areas of life. Enable us to walk together in such a way, Father, that the world will know that we are your disciples by our love for one another. Thank you for this group. I pray, Father, that you continue to uh, speak to our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that this teaching has enriched your understanding of God. If you found this teaching to be helpful, share it with your friends and family on social media and tag us at Scotts Hill. Till next time.